Come on. Spending too much time on social? Is your daily screen time over two hours? Are you a little bit overweight? Not saving enough money? Any or all of these are familiar. Strive could be for you. The Strive two-week online boot camp will help you to detox your mind, body, and money, getting you on your way to a happier, healthier, wealthier, and more confident life. Go to strivedetox.com, S-T-R-I-V-E-D-E-T-O-X.com, and get your mind, body, and money right. Welcome to Money Savage, Savage Approach to Personal Finance. This is George Grombacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, strong and powerful Romina Bacha. Romina, are you ready to do this? Yes. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, welcome back. Romina is a fiscal and economic expert. She's a public speaker, a panel moderator, and the director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. And again, I'm excited to have you back on. Romina, I know you told us a little bit about it last time, but tell us a little bit more about your personal life, some more about your work, and why it is that you do what you do. Yeah, I live in uh, Washington. DC now and have been living in this area for about 15 years, uh, advising members of Congress, the administration, but also speaking to the public about our nation's fiscal challenges and how we can address them. And the reason I'm really in this business and why I became an economist is because I wanted to understand what makes people and societies thrive and what creates um, poverty and uh, uh, problems in society. And Economics has been really an an effective lens for me to understand the world in a better way and that policy really matters for people and the opportunities that they will will be uh, will face in their lives. And so I decided to go into policy to work towards um, creating that better environment where all people have an opportunity to thrive, to realize their full potential and to live the American dream, which has been very much my experience. I'm an immigrant from Germany, and I just became a U.S. citizen last August. That's right. I I remember seeing that online. Congratulations again. Thank you. That's that's, that's awesome. And I was so grateful for for you to be able to come on last time, and I, I... I really wanted to find an expert, somebody who could speak to uh, to the deficit and um, and the, the 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 federal debt, and I feel like you did such a great job at that. Um, and then I had another conversation with um, somebody who who told me that there's no reason that anybody should be thinking about the federal deficit; it's just not important, and it just it just made me shake my head and sort of realize that there's so many things that we are focused on as a country, particularly from a political standpoint, that we're not thinking enough about the the current impact that the debt has and the deficit and then what it's going to look like, you know, 20, 30 years from now if, if, if we don't change anything. And then I saw that you recently published an article talking about this very thing. So... So just wanted to sort of kick it off and talk about it's been about a year. So how how are we doing with the with the deficit? Yeah, it's uh, it's gotten much worse. Some of it we saw coming, uh, including five years ago when President Obama started touting that 
the deficit was falling. And I think some of the decline in interest in our fiscal situation and the deficit stems from that period where for roughly three, four years in a row, every state of the union, uh, the president touted his success at uh, reducing the deficit. What he didn't mention was that part of that was because there was actually a law in place, the Budget Control Act of 2011, uh, that kept down spending that led to um, fierce negotiations between Republicans and Democrats and actually kept a lid on um, spending growth. Since President Trump came into office, uh, those uh, spending deals have become much, much worse. Uh, the president has been willing to cut much bigger deals uh, with Democrats uh, than President Obama was cutting with uh, Republicans. And in part, it stems from the president's primary interest, not in addressing our fiscal situation, but first and foremost, to rebuild a military uh, that he thinks uh, suffered under the last administration. And so in the interest of boosting defense spending, um, the president has agreed to massive increases in uh, non-defense domestic spending, which the Democrats demand in exchange. The, the uh, result of all this has been that uh, the first budget deal that President Trump cut with uh, the congressional Democrats ended up uh, being bigger than all of the budget deals under the Obama administration combined. And then they just cut another one uh, uh, last year that was about the same size. So it's been it's been incredible. Spending has gone up significantly, which is why it's no surprise that uh, the deficit has now climbed above a trillion dollars for this year and will be rising uh, steeply from there. We'll be in trillion dollar deficit territory for the foreseeable future, approaching almost two trillion by the end of this decade. And that's assuming we don't have a economic decline, a, a recession uh, in between now and then, because these are, you know, best circumstance scenario projections. Wow. Okay. So, so the cause of a lot of this is, is, is politicking. It's, it's president Trump wanting to be able to spend a bunch of money on the military and the Congress saying, okay, but we need to spend on these domestic programs as well. That's right. That's where that agreement comes in. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, oh, um, the deficit went up because of the tax cuts. Now, per the, the, the tax revenue that the federal government is collecting actually went up. Uh, just between 2019 to 2020, the, um, I mean, from 2018 to 2019, the, the latest data that we have, the uh, revenues climbed by 4% over that one-year period, despite the tax cuts because of the growing economy. But what what people fail to mention is that spending grew at twice the rate at 8%. And it's that that's what's causing the deficit is that higher revenues are chasing ever higher spending. And in the long run, that is highly unsustainable because the government can only spend and use up the resources that the economy first created. And you can only tax as much as you know, your economy can bear to pay. And um, as as the government uses up more resources and chooses to forego paying for them in the current period, but uh, impo could impose much higher taxes in the future to address the growing national debt, which is the result of, you know, annual deficits adding on top of each other, uh, that 
that can those higher taxes uh, can significantly constrain our economy. And that's where some of the concern comes in is that today's spending is not for productivity enhancing investments. Most of the deficit spending the federal government does is purely for consumption. They are mostly transfer payments in the form of various entitlements, welfare programs, healthcare is a big one, and social security is the other uh, elephant in the room. And so we're, we're spending all this money on deficit without creating future prosperity, but actually undermining the ability of the younger generation and the next generation to be able to, to live as well as this generation has or to, to, to be able to live even uh, better. We're, we're mortgaging the future uh, with current policies, and that assumes that we'll be able to continue doing this for a while and the government can just ta raise taxes at some point. It, it doesn't um, account for the real and growing risk that we might have an actual fiscal crisis. So ha has it been the case historically that when there's a contraction that spending will will go down? Actually, the opposite. When we have an economic contraction, we have uh, so-called um, automatic stabilizing policies in place that kick in. That, for example, means that more people will be on welfare programs, more people will qualify uh -huh. for Medicaid and other subsidies. So spending tends to go up during economic contractions. And then you also find politicians of both parties um, they get confused and they think because government spending is one of the factors that we count in GDP, that if they spend more money on government stuff, that that's going to boost GDP. And they think that that means that the economy uh, will be stronger. So we usually find politicians adopting some type of stimulus package to try and boost GDP in this recession. At the same time, tax revenues contract. They do contract. And that's because the uh, recession is... Um, basically, we have a, a, a decline in production and demand in the economy. And so as businesses make less money, uh, people become unemployed. Uh, businesses don't tend to expand as much during recessions. Uh, the government is able to collect less revenue. So you have, you have a drop in revenue, a steep increase in spending, um, and you usually end up with massive deficits uh, during recessions for that reason. So if I'm getting this right, when times are good, we should be putting some money away because when times are bad, we'll need to spend more of it. That's right. And that is what um, smart, prudent countries around the world <laughs> practice. And I, I, I want to name a few because unfortunately, the United States is not on this list. In fact, the United States is currently the top industrialized country that is adding debt uh, at a faster rate compared to the growth in our economy, and we're one of the fastest growing economies <laughs> uh, than any other country. So we are like the number one uh, uh, debt increaser. That's what we are right now, which is really not the top spot that we wanna hold. Uh, but if you look at some countries that have adopted good policies, like you suggest, um, make room and create some fiscal space for when times are tough, when the economy uh, is is in decline uh, by by saving by spending less when the economy is strong and create some surpluses so you have those funds available to uh, paper over 
when, when, when times are tough. And in Switzerland, they have the so-called debt break. Germany has a similar policy. Basically, what they do is they constrain government spending during times of economic strength, which is also good for the private sector, because if the private sector is strong and the government is doing too much spending, it actually takes resources away from the private sector. If you think every person employed by the government is a person not available to work in a private sector capacity. Those are real resources that get used up. Used up. And also any 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 resources, like when the government builds a big infrastructure project, are resources not available to the private sector. It can drive up the cost of steel and cement and all these other um, inputs that are also used in private sector construction. So that's the crowd out. But yeah, so Switzerland, uh, Sweden, uh, Germany, even Canada, um, have, they've adopted all these prudent policies. Uh, these are often referred to as counter-cyclical uh, balancing policies where you allow for deficits during times of distress, uh, but you curtail uh, deficits and government spending to make room for the private sector when the economy is strong. Right now, we're doing the opposite. We are, um, the federal government is spending, is, is spending at, a, at a rising rate we have deficits that we haven't had since 2012 when we were still climbing out of the Great Recession, and yet our economy is uh, one of the strongest uh, that it can be with unemployment super low, um, and the government should be retreating at this point, but instead they're doubling down. And everything you just said, it, it certainly intellectually makes sense to me, and now and now it completely makes sense to me when, 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 when you explain it and then you talk about countries that, that are exercising, um, I, I guess, proper, <clears throat> proper behaviors. If, if you were to ask somebody um, just, I, I, I guess, the, the, the counter, if somebody wanted to argue that the deficit wasn't a problem, would it simply be that look at the growth of our economy and we, 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 we don't need to worry about it because we are growing so fast? So I've heard a number of arguments from uh, what I call the, the deficit deniers. Okay. And uh, one of them is, um, well, if, if trillion-dollar deficits were a problem, how come our economy is growing so strongly? But we also have um, evidence that uh, since 2014, our economy likely grew about 1% uh, one percentage point more slowly than it otherwise would have if the government hadn't had such high deficits and debt. This is by uh, done a study by the Mercatus Center that identified there was about a one-third reduction in potential growth that we could have had if it hadn't been for government spending and particularly deficit spending crowding out activity in the private sector. So you know, our economy is growing, but the latest numbers are roughly 2.3%. Um, there's no reason why we couldn't be growing at 3% or above. And I do believe that our uh, our high, high government spending and growing deficits are contributing to that lesser growth. And one of the channels that that's happening is uh, by increasing uncertainty. When a business makes an investment, they don't just think about what the economy is doing today, but depending on the investment, they're thinking 5, 10, 15, 20 years ahead of time. And if you look at our fiscal situation and where we are in the business cycle, right now we're in one of the longest expansions with uh, the economy growing 
uh, and no recession in the history of this country, um, businesses are expecting that there will be another downturn, in part because of the bad policies that led to the last one that we didn't fix, but that our government actually doubled down on in many ways. And they're expecting that taxes will likely have to be higher in the future, reducing the return on investment from investments they make today. And why do they expect that? Because our deficit and debt are highly unsustainable and it can't go on forever. At some point, something's going to have to change. And one of the likely um, results of this, given our politics, will be that even though it's not um, tax revenue, a lack of tax revenue driving our deficits, in order to cut a political bargain, um, taxes will likely be raised. And that might include businesses. I really can't. I, I can't see a scenario where, if we continue at the current rate, that they wouldn't go up. Exactly. If you're a smart businessman, that's what you expect. Uh, would would expect as well. Another reason I've heard, and this is a more recent um, reason that people are giving, is uh, this idea of uh, they call it modern monetary theory, which uh, they argue that. First of all, there's an assumption that government spending is good for the economy. We should we should get that assumption straight. Um, there's no concern about the fact that government spending actually has a negative multiplier because for every dollar the government spends, um, the, the economy doesn't get a dollar in extra benefit. It gets more like between 40 and 60 cents, depending on where that money goes, because it's not as prudently <laughs> Uh, right. invested than a business would. Um, and so they also assume, and, and I mean, this is a truth that we have a, we have a country that issues its own currency, the US dollar. We generated, the government gets benefits from issuing currency. It's called senior Raj, where uh, when that first dollar hits the economy, the government gets to spend it first. It has its full value until it moves through. And over time, it declines slightly based on uh, inflation and how different uh, costs are rising. Uh, and so MMTers argue that the government should just issue currency to spend, skip the borrowing part altogether, let's just print money, and let's keep printing money until uh, we, see, we see inflation. And then they make the assumption that our Federal Reserve or the Treasury, whoever does the money issuance and economic management that they envision, that they can just stop the inflation whenever they want to and just perfectly tweak um, the money supply and inflation by um, t just taxing people all of a sudden. I mean, they make a lot of assumptions of how, how this would go, but we've seen MMT in action in, in many countries, uh, Venezuela, <laughs> Argentina. And what I'm referring to is countries that have just loosely printed uh, money issued currency in order to finance their government operations, uh, and they are suffering from hyperinflation to the point that Venezuela, which was the most prosperous country in Latin America about 30, 40 years ago, is now a collapsing economy that has resorted to barter because their currency has become, the Bolivar has become so uh, worthless. Uh, not useful as a method of exchange, a means of exchange, because the value is so uncertain, it keeps changing by dropping, and, and absolutely worthless as a store of value, uh, with 
inflation, according to the IMF last year. Uh, that means if you had $10,000 at the beginning of the year, by the end of the year, the, the value of that would be only 10 cents. So you, so you can't use it. The Amazing. money is no longer usable. And that is what happens when you tell governments, uh, just you know, go ahead and, and spend all you want and just print the money. Right. So I, I saw, or uh, in, in a recent interview, uh, President Trump indicated that he might be open to cutting programs like Social Security and Medicare. What do you think that the odds of that actually happening are? You know, it's funny. I think there was a misunderstanding. I, I believe okay. you're referring to his remarks at Davos. Perhaps. At the, yeah. And they were asking him about entitlements. And a lot of people in the U.S. interpreted that as Social Security and Medicare. Mm. But the, I believe the president interpreted it as the welfare state. Uh-huh. Because if you look at his comments, and I think we'll see this reflected in his forthcoming budget on February 10th, um, he talked about how the strong economy means that fewer people are on welfare, that they're going back to work, and that that is how this administration is reducing entitlement spending because they, they keep the economy strong, which means people actually opt to work instead of collecting a welfare check. But that's very different from uh, reforming middle-class entitlements that are largely going towards people that are already retired or have reduced uh, their hours worked if they're uh, semi-retired. I don't think that's what the president was referring to, uh, but I think the, the, the reason that that was interpreted this way is that uh, Democrats, of course, were in an election year, were looking for something to attack the president on, and so they, they interpreted it as Medicare and Social Security, and I think that's probably the headlines that you saw. But the president quickly came out on Twitter, of course. Mm. How else does a president communicate that's right. uh, with his constituents and, and said, I have promised uh, not to uh, cut your Social Security and Medicare benefits. I have kept that promise, and I'll continue to keep it. So. Mm. That's what he said. Well, I'm sort of bummed out. I, I was kind of hoping we'd open the door to having that conversation at some point. But yeah, probably pretty tough for uh, for any politician to actually try to go down that road. You know, if you were going to do it, it you would do it during a second term. Right. Um, the question is, is he is he going to be the guy to lead on that? And uh, he is a man who, who's uh, been keeping his promises when it comes to what he said about securing the border. That's been a big priority for this administration and also um, the trade, the trade concerns that the president had. That's been a key theme throughout his uh, first term. So if we take him by his word, he might not be the guy to lead us down that uh, grand bargain. Um, also something to perhaps give us some indication is um, he was also asked uh, about the deficit and debt, and he recently said, "Who cares about who cares about the debt?" And apparently, in private conversations, also told his advisors when they showed him the charts of how debt just goes um, off the charts uh, in in a roughly uh, ten years. He was like, "Well, I won't be in office anymore. Mm-hmm. Then why would I care?" Very encouraging. Very, 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 very encouraging. Perfect. <laughs> Well, Romina, any any closing thoughts? Yes, I think that uh, people who are looking at the markets and they see that Treasury uh, uh, bonds are still um, able to sell at low low interest rates, um, I think it's giving us a false sense of security and the impression that uh, the U.S. fiscal situation, which is highly unsustainable, 
uh, doesn't matter as much, or at least not now. I think that the markets are actually underpricing the real uh, risks because the U.S. can rely so heavily on the dollar as a way to basically export inflation. It allows us to issue more currency than would be possible if the dollar wasn't the world's reserve currency because so many dollars, about half of the dollars created, leave the country and are used in um, international trade or uh, in countries to stabilize their own currencies. So they're not fluctu- they're not moving throughout our economy. Uh, but that only works for as long as there isn't a suitable alternative. And as our fiscal situation becomes more and more untenable, and if our politics continues to be so divisive that we're sending a signal to international markets that, hmm, perhaps we're not such a good long-run uh, risk, perhaps uh, there is some chance that uh, we might make bad decisions and not deal with this before it becomes a, a full-fledged uh, fiscal crisis, uh, that that could also spur the development of an alternative to the dollar, hmm. the dollarized payment system. And those are things that uh, I don't think are being fully considered um, and that we might actually, um, that there's, there's a risk premium that we're not currently seeing uh, but that the risk of a fiscal crisis is very real. And the longer we wait to address what's driving the U.S. deeper and deeper into deficits and debt, um, the more likely that fiscal crisis becomes. Got it. <clears throat> well, Amina, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? I would love for some of your listeners to follow me on Twitter at Romina Bacha. I'm also on Instagram, Instagram for some of the younger folks uh, at the Lucid Economist, and uh, I'll be sharing uh, my pieces and where I'm going to speak. This week I'm in uh, South Carolina at Presbyterian College, so I uh, would love for some folks to uh, connect with me there and let me know if they have any questions. Awesome. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Romina your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Follow her on Twitter and Instagram, and I'll list both those in the notes of the show. Thank you again, Romina. Thanks for having me. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together.